0: Hello, uh, let me just start by reading uh, Luke 4, uh, beginning at uh, verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Father God, this is, this is an absolutely momentous point in scripture, and uh, it's, uh, it's momentous for us, and it feels momentous every time I come to this. This passage and this moment. And I pray that uh, you would enable me to do this passage justice and I pray that you would by your Holy Spirit make real to us in our our several ways the things that we need to take away from this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, it's that moment where Jesus says, today. That's that's what I'm going to try and unpack today. What did today mean for Jesus, what, what were all the things that went into that today? And further, what does today mean for us? Where are we today? I'm hoping that we can set our navigation today by this passage, and I'm hoping that God will speak to each of us where we may have lost direction, where we may not be sure where we are in relation to God's call on our life. And each, each one of us here has a call, and Jesus had a call. And, uh, and, and I hope that our today will be a day of setting the satnav of knowing where we're going, where we're at, in terms of how close we are to the fulfilment of our calling. So, let me just start with the first point then, that Jesus' today was a day for the end of testing. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. If you're going through a time of testing, it's helpful, isn't it, to be reminded that it's always time-limited. Uh, it's a timed exam. It's a, it's a season of training. Uh, although it may seem never-ending, you wonder when it's ever going to come to an end. It feels like you're stuck in the wilderness. And yet there comes a point where when the devil had ended every test, he left him until an opportune time. I've often been inspired by people who persevere against the odds? I'm addicted to stories of people who persevere against the odds. Back when I was uh, living in a bachelor pad, we had the History Channel. Is there still such a thing as a History Channel? The History Channel was always it was always talking about the lives of uh, great inventors who would sort of persevere against all the odds to invent a light bulb or or, or to, to find penicillin and all, all these these amazing inventions that have been um, invented. And I'm I'm particularly interested in the story of this guy called Charles Goodyear. Charles Goodyear, in the year 1834, he's living in Connecticut, and he's aware of this company called the the Roxbury Rubber Company. And they've invented this new product, which is going to be incredibly useful. And they've already decided that they'll make wagon covers from it, and piano covers, and, and footwear. So they've manufactured all these products, and people have been buying this footwear, rubber footwear, rubber wagon covers, rubber piano covers, and it's marvelous. Everyone thinks it's an incredible new product. The only trouble was that um, it wasn't resistant to extremes of heat and cold. So you'd be walking along in your little rubber boots in the freezing cold of the New England winter, and you find it's gone completely solid and you can't move, there's no flexibility whatsoever. Or in the heat of the summer, you'd have a, a wagon cover, and all of a sudden it starts to melt and to ooze and give off a foul smell. Or you've come home from your uh, wintry walk and you still got your boots on, you're going to warm up your feet by the fire, and they start to ooze and give off this foul smell, and you've just got this sticky mess. So people were returning these products by the, by the droves, and the Roxbury Rubber Company was in ruin. But Charles Goodyear reckoned, I, I can develop this, I can work out how, to vulcanize it, uh, to make it resistant to extremes of heat and cold. And he discovered that by adding nitric acid, it makes it resistant to extremes of heat and cold, at least superficially so. You know, the early experiments seemed to indicate that was the case. This, this guy wasn't a scientist, he was just a have-a-go inventor. The 19th century was full of these, these characters. And so he sells everything he's got, sells all his furniture, moves into temporary uh, accommodation, and uh, he's got this product, only trouble is the, the financial crisis hits uh, in 1837 and there's no interest in, in, in buying this product, there are no investors, no one wants to spend any money on, the, on this new product because they still remember the, the first version and how, how useless it was. But undeterred by this, uh, Charles Goodyear, he takes to the streets wearing a rubber hat, a rubber tie, a rubber shirt, a rubber rubber waistcoat, a rubber jacket, rubber trousers, rubber boots, and he's doffing his hat to everybody, he's just standing on the street corner, doffing his hat to everybody, his rubber hat, and, and showing off his rubber suit as a kind of, uh, you know, he's, he's just one of these have-a-go uh, people He's just doing his own kind of marketing. And eventually this lands him a contract with um, the Postal Service, and the Postal Service get him to just, the postal service get him to make these uh, postal bags, uh, these bags for posties. And so he's got this contract, so it's fantastic. There's a bit of money coming in. And uh, so posties all over the country are traveling with these bags of, 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 of letters. Trouble was, only that this nitric acid had only hardened the outside of the rubber. And so on a hot day, a postie would be st- slipping his hand into the bag and pulling out. Uh, another sticky, gooey, uh, horrible mess. So he's he's ruined once again. His his reputation is over. He can't feed his family, uh, and then, um, but he does in fact, by chance, he comes across this idea that if you use sulfur instead of nitric acid, and then further, he again found out by accident by dropping some on a hot stove that if you heat it if you galvanize it with, with, with sulfur, and he's very, very dangerous chemical. He nearly killed himself with all these chemicals. You have a, a fully vulcanized product. But by then, there was a financial crisis uh, that, that hit, another financial crisis, and, and, the, uh, and there, was a, there was a very, very bad winter as well, he couldn't keep his family warm. So eventually, he travels through a blizzard, gets some money lent to him from a friend, and he's able to get his family through the winter, and he has enough money to travel to New York to try and find some investors. But en route, he's arrested uh, for debt and he's put in prison. It wasn't the first time either, he owed so much money. But undeterred, while he's in prison, he's writing to all these investors, seeing if they're interested in this product that he's finally perfected. And sure enough, on release from prison, he does manage to secure some contracts, and, and it's a reliable product, finally he's got his rubber that actually works. Uh, he died in 1860, but in, in, in 1898, there was a, this company set up to make tires, uh, because it was found that tires are the most useful product you can you can do, you can make with, with rubber. And uh, guess what that company was called? Uh, uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a consoling thing, isn't it? If, if you've gone over a if you've gone over a pothole like I did the other week and you, you, you're, you're letting go of eye-watering sums of money to replace your tires, you can just think of Charles Goodyear and all that he went through and you can draw uh, courage from it. Okay. So, but my main point is that um, through all these trials, there is an end point. There's a point where the testing is completed and the product is ready and you are ready. You're ready for the road. You are road You are road-tested. And you are ready. Uh, C.S. Lewis ends his book, The Last Battle, with this wonderful, memorable phrase, the dream is ended, this is the morning. This. It, it, it's wonderful. You come to that place where this is not a drill. This is not training anymore. This is not practice anymore. This is the real thing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And there's that to look forward to. If you're still in the wilderness, if you're still like Charles Goodyear, going through test after test after test, if you're still like Jesus, stuck in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil relentlessly, day in and day out, you've got that to look forward to. It will end. And if, for you, it has ended, well, then there's a fresh anointing. There's a fresh anointing to be had. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, we, we think possibly he actually was engaged in some ministry. In the early chapters of John's Gospel, We might have to, if we're going to harmonize the Gospels, we'd have to fit those in there. So there's the woman of Samaria, there's the turning of water into wine. So some of that happens in between the end of his testing in the wilderness and the start of his Galilean ministry. But nonetheless, there's a, there's a, there's definitely, this is a new moment for Jesus. It's a, there's a fresh anointing. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. There's a new power to do what wasn't possible before. And there were, let's face it, there were no notable results, although we know from John's Gospel Jesus was doing a few things that his fame had yet to spread. He'd even recruited his first six disciples, but his fame was yet to spread. It wasn't until he undertook this preaching tour of uh, Galilee that news of him went everywhere. This is the breakthrough moment. This is when Jesus has finally come on the scene. His day of manifestation has come. Things are the same. He's, He's still preaching like he was, Working miracles like he was, but something has been added. I'm quite hot this morning. Um, I, I love reading the history of revivals, and if you read about John Wesley, John Wesley and all his friends, they had gathered for an all-night prayer meeting in 18 sorry 1739, which was just on the eve of the of the the outbreak of this massive revival, biggest revival this country's ever known. Went on for several decades during the middle of the 18th century. Transformed the face of England. But what how it started was this all-night prayer meeting. And they were gathered for prayer, him and George Whitfield and Charles Wesley and a few of their friends in a place called Fetter Lane. And they they describe in their journals how God swept in and they were all on their faces, speechless, absolutely speechless. Speechless before the presence of Almighty God. They'd never experienced anything like this. The presence of God was so, so powerful. And one of Wesley's friends writes about how that changed Wesley. Uh, He he says this. His preaching was once like the firing of an arrow, all the speed and force depending on the strength of his arm in bending the bow. Thereafter, it was like the firing of a rifle ball, the whole force depending on the powder and needing only a finger touch to let it off. The content of the preaching didn't change, but the power of it did. I think also of D.L. Moody, this famous preacher in Chicago. He was kind of like the forerunner of Billy Graham, he was the Billy Graham of his day. And in 1871, he was preaching as normal in his uh, great big church, very, very big successful church in Chicago. And the two Methodist ladies sat on the front row every week uh, praying for him. And they said to him, we've been praying that you will get the power. And he was very offended by this because he was actually already a very, very successful preacher and people were coming to the Lord in droves. but as soon as they told him that, he, he began to develop this terrible hunger. He, 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 the hunger became so intense that he felt he didn't want to live unless he had that power. He wanted that power. He must have it. And then one, he describes one occasion. He was over in New York. And the Lord met with him in such a way. And he had such an experience of God's love. He had to, he had to beg God to stop. He couldn't take it anymore. It's too overwhelming. This is too unbelievably amazing and fantastic and powerful. Please stop. And, and likewise, from there on, the preaching, the content of the preaching hadn't changed, but the power of it had. People were coming to the Lord in hundreds and thousands, and it's estimated he must have, he must have led many millions of people, it, the British Isles alone, actually, in his tour of the British Isles, Which came a few years later, Uh, millions, literally millions, came to the Lord under his uh, ministry. And, And countless similar stories could be told of people who were already doing the stuff, but then the Spirit came. And it was the same and yet different. The same and yet different. And it's the same for Jesus. It's a, new, it's a new season for Jesus. Things are the same but different. And he even comes to Nazareth. What a way to inaugurate your ministry, to go to the place where you're most likely to be despised because they've known you since you were a baby, since you were a toddler running around at the back. And now that little toddler is going to stand up and say, I'm the one. I, I'm, I, I've got this special anointing. He does that in his hometown, in his, in his home synagogue, where there was maximum possible familiarity, maximum possible contempt. I asked the Lord this morning, why did you do that? Because I, I actually don't get it. That, that seems like almost the opposite of what you think to do. It, it, you know, we know from this passage, he goes on to Capernaum. And it's tremendous tremendous reception he gets there. Why didn't he, why didn't he do his inaugural sermon, as it were, in Capernaum? Why did he do it here, where everyone ended up trying to throw him off a cliff? But uh, that's something for you to discuss over lunch. I, I don't really understand that. But anyway, he's got a fresh anointing. So there's the end of testing. There's a fresh anointing so that things can be the same and yet different. There's new impact. There's a new impactfulness to what you have always done. What you've always been gifted to do, what you've always been good at, can now be done with real power and real effectiveness. If that's where you are, if you know that you are at the end of a test, then seek God because it's time for a fresh anointing. Uh, To be anointed with fresh oil and to have strength like a wild ox, as the psalmist says. Okay. I think also of James 5.11, it's a lovely passage that describes the testing of Job. You've seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Even Job's testing came to an end, and God rewarded him and consoled him. Then the third thing that goes into Jesus' today is clarity of vision and purpose, clarity of vision and purpose. So there he is, he's, he's turned up at his home synagogue, and everyone's arriving in, in hushed quietness. They've arrived in quite a hurry, because the tradition is you have to walk to the synagogue in a, in a hurry to show that you're eager for the word, and you have to saunter very slowly home afterwards to show that you're sad, it's it's all over, like, like we all do. You know, when we're, we're really sad, the church service is over, so we go home really, really slowly. But we, we arrive really quick. We always arrive because we're always late. We're always, always at a because always late. But um, everyone, uh, uh, probably slightly out of breath, has has come, and they're in a moment of quiet prayer. And then it's at that point that Jesus would have asked the synagogue ruler, "Can I be the one that reads the prophets? Because they would have had a reading from Moses and a reading from the prophets. Can I?" from the prophets please and can it be the Isaiah scroll please and so the Hazan, the the assistant would have fetched the scroll from under the uh, under the ark there was a curtain and there was an ark where you'd bring the scroll out and it'd be ready and so there was still much to get through in this service and Jesus must have been thinking when is my moment going to come where I'm eager to stand up and, 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 and say my thing remember this is God And God has been waiting for centuries for this moment. He's been waiting since the fall of Adam and Eve to be able to stand up in person, in human form, and say, I've come for you now. I've come. I'm here. He's been waiting since the call of Abraham. He's been waiting since the days of the monarchy. He's been waiting since the exile and the return. He's been waiting since Isaiah first wrote those words to stand up and say, I'm here for you. I'm here for, for, the, for the afflicted. I'm here for the brokenhearted. I'm here for the captives. I'm here for the oppressed. I'm right here now. And today is the day. He's been waiting for that. But there's still more ceremony to get through. There's the creed, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is, is one God. And then there's various prayers, um, including the 18 benedictions, which people would say under their breath, while facing Jerusalem. The 18 Benedict, that's a a lot of liturgy to get through, an awful lot of liturgy to get through before it's time to finally have the reading. And then a member of the congregation would come up and read from Moses, and then pray, and then sit down, and then finally it's Jesus' turn to read from the Isaiah scroll and to come to that point where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. In the, in the Hebrew, that was to gladden the hearts of the afflicted. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. In the original Hebrew, you've also got to, to bind up the brokenhearted. Uh, that, that line has been omitted in the, in the quotation of it. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And again, thinking back to the Hebrew that Jesus would have been reading from, it's the, it's the Hebrew word, Doror. And Duror describes the swooping flight of a swallow, playfully rolling and swirling and tumbling in the air. It's a picture of real freedom. And what Isaiah himself was prophesying was that there would be a year of jubilee. The jubilee year was the year when everyone's debts would be cancelled, people could return to their ancestral land, people could be released from prison, uh, and, and, and released from slavery, uh, and everything would be restored to normal. Restored to normal. Everything would be reset. It was a, a kind of a, a, a nationwide reset every 50 years. And what Isaiah is prophesying is that this, this is going to be a new age, an age-long reset, a permanent reset, a permanent renewal and regeneration, and a setting free. Doror, liberty, a swallow swooping through the air. And recovering of sight to the blind. Uh, Yeah, in the Hebrew version, it's the opening of the prison to those who are bound, but we won't go into the reasons why it's different. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim favor to those who are so covered in shame they can't look up to let them know that even though their misery is self-induced, they brought it upon themselves, yet God is a God of compassion. And so Jesus finally gets to say these meaning-laden words uh, as God in the flesh who's finally come to announce the redemption that he will accomplish through his death and resurrection. But he's already proclaiming it and giving people a foretaste of it now. So he reads that out, and then he has to say a prayer. So there's still a little bit more liturgy to get through. He has to say this, magnified and sanctified be his great name in the world which he has created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom during your life and during your days and during the life of all the house of Israel, even speedily and at a near time. And then he could sit down and begin his sermon. It's interesting that that prayer finishes... that this would begin now, speedily and at a near time. And he goes on to say, today, today this is fulfilled. Today this is fulfilled. The testing is over, the new anointing has come, and there's clarity of vision and purpose. I, I, I'm, I've I'm, been in this passage since, since I was in my twenties. I didn't know, it's only recently become clear really what it was going to mean. I ended up in academia, and I'm still in academia, but it's only now that there's clarity of vision and purpose, and I realize that the academic, the 20 years of academia is just training and testing, Uh, it's preparation for what is beginning to unfold. I've already begun to take a day off in the week, funded by a pension fund, which I paid into when I was back in my 20s, when I first began to meditate on this passage. And so I've made myself available for more speaking and preaching and things like that. And uh, things have already started to open up. Um, In December, I was preaching in front of the mayor of Gedling and the MP of Gedling. Uh, I was absolutely terrified, but um, it's it's the beginning of something new. It's the beginning of what God has been preparing me for for 20 years. And telling me about for long before then, and it's all to do with this passage. So, um, yeah, thankfully, I think I'm at that point where there's beginning to be clarity of vision and purpose. So let's just uh, let's just stand up and make our own response to the Lord. So I dare say you've already identified where you are, whether you're still in the test, still in the training, uh, eager for it to be finished, but you know there's still a little way to go. Or the devil has ended every temptation, and he's departed from you until an opportune time, and now you've got this fresh anointing. You've returned in the power of the Spirit to where you were to do what you always did, but there's now fresh power. And maybe even not only... Got that, but you've begun to get a clarified vision and purpose. Let me just pray for you now uh, that you would um, be led from one stage to the next. Father God, let your Holy Spirit come upon us all to clarify for us where we are, but also to speed us along on our way so that the test is quickly over, so that the fresh anointing quickly comes and clarity of vision is soon with us." I think there is actually one person here. You have recently received a call to preach. I think you have preached before, so this isn't a new thing. But you feel uh, a fresh call to preach. Um, But you are filled with a sense of doubt. What need is there of another preacher? Well, we need you. Um, We need you. And uh, just pray with someone before you go, and uh, pray through that calling uh, to preach. And I I felt there was somebody else here who um, has recently had a very strange spiritual experience. Uh, uh, You're not sure if it was the Holy Spirit. Uh, Hopefully, it is, but uh, you're not sure uh, what it was. It was so strange. Uh, So again, with you, just do, before you go home, uh, pray with someone and and see if you can discern together what that was about. Otherwise, thanks everyone for listening.